It is, a, is it a Bud Light or a top shelf scotch or other liquor? What is their drink selection like? Champagne every night. Would you want to sit in a club with a frumpy recluse with a bad attitude? So here are the ways to identify a whale. With these elements in place, you create your ultimate signature atmosphere, also known as the champagne room. Dude is a pimp. He did pimp. And that's and that's why he beat his girlfriend. Now, is he with the gymnast chick that I was talking about before? No, I think it's someone else that's with the gymnast chick. Well, Either that. She, oh, yeah, go ahead. She's all over the internet, and I started getting like recommended these videos. I'm like, who is this woman? And uh, she's very smiley, and. You know, she's a gymnast, so she's probably like three apples high, but it's all behind. It's just, she's just rumped out. What's her name again? Catherine Hokley? Kate, Caitlin? Something, Ohashi? She's some sort of Havsey as well. A Havsey? Is that what she's She's like the thickest Havsey ever created. Maybe that's why she's so popular on the internet, because it's like, we have made the most amazing Havsey. No, she's, um, she's sassy. That's her thing. Is that what's her thing? Caitlin Ohashi. Ohashi, yeah. Caitlin. Millions of views. And then she'll hit you with like a butt shot. She's 4'10". I told you, she's a gymnast. She's three apples high. Gymnasts are super small. But she's all behind. She's this huge butt. Okay. She's German. she's German and Japanese. Yeah, Habsy. Uh, She's like a master race. Axis <laughs> Power Special. Axis Power Special. Well, you know the the Japanese were honorary Aryans. Yeah. Oh, is that what? Okay, That's so true. she. Oh. She's, she's, she's in L.A. What are the chances of me meeting this small woman with a big butt? Stop. She is four ten. Just because you're not five ten doesn't mean that you should look, be messing with a girl. I'm gonna look six eight to this four ten woman. She's gonna think she's with a basketball player. <laughs> My God. She could look into your pockets. <laughs> That's where I don't want her to look, because then all the she'll realize I'm just a pseudo celebrity. Jason dates a halfling. You, know, you, so you want to hear something funny? Speaking of like people shitting on what you do for a living, uh, this woman matches with me on one of these dating apps, and we're talking back and forth via the text feature. And um, she's like, "What do you do for a living?" And I was like, "Oh, I have a podcast." And she goes. Oh, what do you talk about? And I, you know, like, uh, like history. Yeah. Um, oh, that seems interesting. And then uh, uh, earmuffs. She's earmuffs, Jordan Dubin. She looks very earmuffy. Oh. And she, she, did you say, Paul Adnan has no idea about this. Can like, you guys write to Adnan in the chat what earmuffs is? Or is he too, I don't, is he too I don't good don't know what, I, A, I don't know what earmuffs is. And B, uh, me and Adnan, we got married before the whole swiping business. So we escaped the great swipening. <laughs> we got we 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 dated when your best bet was to go to a bar and hope that the girl has enough drunk goggles on to <laughs> Hey, let's not die alone. It was very in person. 
It was in person. Yeah, no yeah. Zoom, no Zoom dating. Well, no this lady, app. this lady goes, um, she says, so this is what you do for a living? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I sent her a thing of the show and she's like, oh, this seems really interesting, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, uh, so what else do you do? Like, what do you really do? Oh, I'm a drug and dealer. I was like, no, this is, this is it, bitch. <laughs> like this. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I got. That's all I got. Uh, I'm not a carpenter by day. How'd you buy all those chains? How are you bankrolling this lifestyle? You have a terrace. You have a terrace. <laughs> I was like, man, what? And what else do you do? That's your macaroni art is adorable. But exactly, it's macaroni art. That's what. That's what. <laughs> this is the vocabulary in my household now. It's like, so I was like, I don't care about your macaroni art, but it's like, look, sir, I made a song on my MIDI keyboard. And it, <laughs> But see, you can't buy macaroni art. Someone who loves you has to give it to you. Did you? Would you, ever, would you did do you anything macaroni? that isn't like a normal job? Like if you're a painter or a photographer or whatever you do, you know, a musician. Um, when you tell people like you're a musician or something, like they're they're like, oh, never heard of you. Like bitch, there's the 300 million people in this country alone. Don't mean the world hasn't. Goddamn mean ass motherfucker. I like saying stuff like that to people. Just Where shit, are you why do I just shitting all on some? My first time in the UK, we were lost in uh, what's the what's the real fucking uppity? Up what's the what? The uppity city. Bath. All of them. Bath. <laughs> Bath. We killed in Bath. No, in London. Kensington, Chelsea, Chelsea. 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 Croydon. Croydon. Keep going. Camberwell? No, no. <laughs> that's not uppity. Yeah. I, can't find it. I can't find it. I know there's a flyer for it somewhere. Camden. Cam- oh, Cam- Cam- that's, uh, hip- okay, right. that's, that's hipsters. That's for the yeah, hipsters. yeah. We we walked into it. We couldn't find the venue, and we walked into a record store, and you know we were we were super lost all over the UK, like lost, because you know the train station and the bus station have the same name, but they won't be the same place. And so we would get so effed up by that, and we were so lost, and we walked into this place, and we're like, we're looking for a venue. I think we had, like, instruments and stuff, and the guy was like, hmm, you're banned? Like, yeah. He's like, what's your name? And telling our name, he's like, hmm, never heard of you. <laughs> and he was like, he was so mean. We, we ended up talking, like, we, we, were, we didn't even care how mean he was. Like, like, look, dude, I get it. Fuck us. We just want to find this place. And he ends up showing us the place. He actually ended up writing us an email. Uh, after the fact, kind of apologizing for his smugness, um, he had listened to the music and and you know, kind of felt bad. That's but uh, the worst thing <laughs> you ever get as when when you're a, a serious, you think you're a serious artist and you travel all over the freaking planet doing something, and people are like, hmm, yeah, never heard of you. you know, when you're not- in, in when you're in Europe and they say that, do you say, well, we're we're big in North America, <laughs> <laughs> big in Japan. We're big in, oh, that's we're, a good one. Yeah, big in yeah. We're big in Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I only say that to people when it's obvious. Like, oh, where are you from? I'm from Jamaica. Never heard of it. <laughs> then it's a good time for everyone. <laughs> I that's why I walk around with my press clippings, so I can be like, oh, you've never heard of me. Press <laughs> clippings. <laughs> <laughs> MT walks around Brooklyn, pissing off Jamaicans, going, Jamaica. 
Oh, were you the guys who had to ask the British for their freedom, whereas we just macheted our way to freedom? <laughs> you had to wait till the 60s? The 60s? Wait, the 60s? Wow. Wow, that's how how cute. You did? Hmm. And, and all your prime ministers look like Sean King. <laughs> <laughs> Owned. Owned. Damn. We, we have Papa Doc Duvalier, and, you know, and whatever he you say, was black as shit. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you, say, whatever you say about Papa Doc, he's not light skinned. Nope. And he hated white people. Did hate Take that. Uh, except Mother Teresa, who gave him money. Well, she was, uh, what do you call it? Catholic. She was Catholic. Catholics are white, I believe. I thought she I was Indian. I don't know if all of them are. No? I don't I know. know. I, 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 that's, that's, that's a medieval story. It's so a, white, white Catholics. I mean, actually, I'm I'm trying to suggest that um, medieval Europe and Christendom, the concept of Christendom, is actually one of the origin points for uh, whiteness. Is the kind of ethnicization mm-hmm. of Roman Catholic identity. Of course, it goes global and it becomes more, uh, you know, diverse. But during the medieval period. Um, there's a way in which religion starts to take on some of these ethnic and proto-racial characteristics. And that's especially the case for, for the uh, Latin Catholics, the Latins, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, the people of Western Europe, what will become Western Europe. So when you say, yeah, you know, Catholics are, are white, um, of course, in the U.S., white Anglo-Saxon Protestant U.S., they weren't, but, you know, they're earlier their earlier story is essentially uh, creating this ethnic kind of identity. That's so, yeah. so interesting. <clears throat> because religion does often become ethnicized. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm a historian of the modern era, but, you know, we often focus on ethno-linguistic identity as forming a basis of, like, what a nation is. But religion and the eth- – I mean, Israel obviously being the prime example, but also Pakistan – uh, and any number of other states where, I mean, the entire Balkans is basically defined by reli- nationality is defined as by much religion. by yeah. religion. Yeah. I mean, Israel is basically settler colonialism with Balkan characteristics. Mm-hmm. You have like uh, this strong religious uh, aspect, to, aspect to it. But so your argument then would be mm-hmm. is that what the process of interaction with the swarthy peoples of the East uh, within the context of a religiously defined con- uh, conflict served to ethnicize the notion of Catholicism to a greater degree than it had previously been? Yes, yeah, that they, there's a kind of cultural identity, an ethnic identity um, that gets established um, through interaction, but also because of... Um, I located in the crusading kind of uh, process that forges an identity for Christendom as a geopolitical, you know, territorial entity. <laughs> Catholicism was meant to be universalist and they have this universalist I- ideal, but crusading um, actually uh, making material and territorial, you know, this concept of Christendom against the world of Islam or the world of uh, Byzantium ends up ethnicizing uh, Catholic identity as the Latins. And, you know, the mm. counter side of that is the way in which Muslims are, are 
you know, meant to be black and brown. So a white convert to Islam who wears a headscarf immediately gets racialized. Like people think that they are some kind of, you know, foreign or, you know, a person from outside of the, the United States. Um, that's kind of a common experience. So there are ways in which this early history hasn't been completely transcended, you know, in terms of the associations. That are <coughs> what about what about in terms of the uh, definition of the Catholic identity vis-a-vis -vis the Oriental Christians, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox? Yeah. Very interesting kind of issue. I mean, you know, the period that I'm studying and the crusading society, uh, Urban II's uh, sermons, there's different versions of the sermons, but several of them emphasize this idea of universalist connection with and identification with the Eastern Christians. In fact, I would argue that this is one of the first sort of ideologically humanitarian wars because they talk about the need to protect their blood brothers mm -hmm. um, and that they share the same flesh in Christ's flesh. So they take this ritual the idea of the mass, the body and the blood of Christ, because it's a shared ritual. Christians everywhere are meet, you know, their, their connection to one another is bodily, uh, you know, because they're me it's mediated through shared kind of corporeality, the shared body and blood of Christ. And so that's where it starts to become a little bit uh, ethnicized, corporalized, um, the idea that Eastern Christians are, you know, somehow connected and part of this universalist community. But at the same time, what they actually encounter when they go is that these are Eastern peoples. You know, they eat differently, they dress differently, they practice differently. And although some people want to turn it just into a question of doctrine and rituals within the church that they're sectarian differences really it goes way beyond that the problem is is that they are willing to allow themselves according to the latin franks you know the christians from europe they are <coughs> allowing themselves to be subjected to non-christian rule that is like really deeply disturbing point that they complain about eastern christians is that they're effeminate they're easternized and they don't wield sovereignty. They're not a military people like the Franks. And so. Um, well, wait a minute. They're not. They don't want to be ruled by Christians. Is that. No, it's just that they don't rise up. They're not like they. I think I think the uh, Crusaders expected that the Eastern Christians would join them in overthrowing you know, Muslim power and sovereignty, but they found that they had accommodated themselves to the system, you know, where they had a subordinate status, but were allowed to keep their religion and so on. Mm -hmm. And this was anathema to the Latin Christians that you would accept subjection to non-Christian. Mm -hmm. They have their own Pope. They have their own patriarchs. They have their own, you know, their own posts. Saints, um, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of a disturbing realization for them. But what about the, I mean, but what about their attitudes, for example, towards uh, militant Christian kingdoms such as the Armenians and Tarsus? Those and they could, they could um, you know, create alliances with. And so you find the Cilician Armenians who are on, you know, it's kind of considered called lesser Armenia. Lesser Armenia. Greater Armenia is, of course, where it is today, the nation state of Armenia and near the Caucasus. 
but there were, you know, there were, was a Armenian diaspora and they had actually founded their own kingdoms in uh, the southeastern part of Anatolia near what is today Adana, close to Iskenderun, you know, uh, near Syria, that part of what is today Turkey and northern Syria, there were uh, kingdoms of lesser Armenia and those um, were uh, allies of the of the Latin Christians and they in fact actually uh, patronize I mean, them a lot ally with them and they consider them sort of exempt uh, from this kind of view of Eastern Christians as non-military and the and especially in the uh, what is it the principality of Edessa mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You have a kind of hybridization of Frankish and Armenian culture, if I, I'm yes. understanding correctly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. How'd yeah, they get over there? They got on the. They basically yeah, they got on boats and came from Europe, and mm-hmm. then mm. went on a went on a. You know, they were like football hooligans. You know, they <laughs> they went across Anatolia, connecting the soccer. You know. Yeah. Soccer, right. Soccer. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I find it, I mean, because the Crusading Kingdoms, they're often, I think, uh, we we look at the Crusaders as different from other, quote unquote, barbarian peoples that entered Islamic civilization. Mm. But their, their experience is in many ways quite similar to other, uh, quote unquote, barbarian peoples, Turks, um, Mongols, uh, in that the cultural and economic power of Islamic civilization was extremely attractive to them. So even as they maintain their distinct identity, which many groups like Turks and Mongols did when they entered uh, Islamic civilization, there's a kind of contradiction in that on a practical sense, they become increasingly orientalized in the sense that they adopt Islamic customs like washing your hands, eating with a fork, not fucking shitting everywhere, not sleeping Take, next to pigs. Taking you know, a bath. <laughs> taking a bath. A bit, because obviously, you know, th- this was uh, th- this was a more luxury, and this was a wealthier and more luxurious uh, uh, kingdom. I mean, like, I don't know about, well, I'm not an expert on the Crusades, Anna, but, you know, I think some of the, historians of the uh, Crusades, this might be an older historiographical take, is argues that one of the propellants behind the Crusades was the fact that many of these people were recently settled nomadic peoples from the Volkswander in, in Europe with a lot of martial energy that the Catholics were like, we need to direct this somewhere else. Now, I don't know how much that stands up to modern historiography, but certainly comparing the level of social and economic sophistication of the Islamic world and Western Europe at the time, uh, you know, people were attracted to that, uh, the ways of life in, in, in the East, the spices, the foods. I mean, so much of the European palate was shaped during the Crusades because it was the first exposure to these trade routes that brought so many of these. Uh, I mean, think about this, guys. Imagine you have mustard and salt, right? <laughs> that's that's your it. That's, that's just maybe a bit of horseradish if you can find it, right? Don't get me wrong. I like all those things, but come on, man. <laughs> like, and then Europeans get a, get a taste for that through the, the exposure 
to the and also I suppose and I know less about this even less about this than the Crusades, but also through the exchanges through Andalusia. Uh, you know, when Oxford University is established, where do they go buy their books? Toledo. Uh, uh, if you, and if you go to the very oldest buildings in Oxford, you can see they're using a, some kind of intermediary number system between Arabic numbers and Europeanized Arabic numbers. This this. Because imagine guys trying to do maths with Roman numerals. Not going to be fun, guys. Not going to be fun. Easy. <clears throat> it's math is tough math. enough. You know, math is tough enough. You don't need to have a crazy numerical system making it even more complicated. That's oh, right. that's Str Strom's being a hick. Stop being a hick. Mustard and greens are fine, but you know, <laughs> you need to have some sophisticated Oriental spices in there. Otherwise, I mean, come on, cinnamon. You telling me you don't need cinnamon? What the fuck would you guys eat? I mean, I wouldn't put cinnamon on my greens, you weird son of a bitch. <laughs> I have a question. I hope it's not about cinnamon and greens. It's not. It's about something else. Good. So I like to study the Crusades. I And it took me a long time to figure out psychologically why that was. You don't need to know for this question. Um, <laughs> I'll leave us hanging like that. You tell. I, well, I, I like... I like the I. Let me not say this too loudly. I do like the idea of a holy war. I like, but I like Whoa. the idea of it being inside. Like I like the inner jihad. Right. Something right. about that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. You, are you ready yeah. to convert to Islam, like your ethnic brother? I want to be a knight of Malta. Ooh, knight of Malta. Is that bad? I don't want to insult guys, anyone. Those guys are the worst slavers in the medieval, you know, early modern world. You know, weren't they hospitalers? <laughs> yeah, they were, and in fact, actually, they created, you know, when they relocated. Obviously, after 1291, they had to relocate because, you know, the entire Latin Crusader kingdom was conquered, um, you know, and they had to decamp to places like Rhodes. And then from Rhodes, they, you know, went to Malta and they created basically a kind of like slave state where the brothers of the hospitalers kind of ruled over like hundreds and thousands of prisoners of war, enslaved, uh, uh, you know, gosh. labor. And there was a really big slave revolt that happened, actually, I think <clears throat> in the 16th century. So you don't want to be a, a knight of Malta. Uh, quite, I think. Uh, one of the big crusade historians who I really disliked, um, he wrote a he wrote a very famous article. Wait, wait, who? <laughs> We're in the champagne. I, this the is the champagne room, so I we can we can you know behind a paywall. This person's not watching. Yeah, he actually died not so long ago, but he was um, Jonathan Riley Smith at Cambridge, and he wrote a. <laughs> He wrote a, a, a book called, uh, or sorry, an article called Crusading as an Act of Love. So he, too, liked a little holy war. What? Uh, okay, I this, wouldn't go that far. His whole point was that it was done out of caritas, Christian charity. So when I say this whole idea, you know, that, you know, this is the first responsibility to protect, you know, humanity <clears throat> in war, it's this idea that, well, our you know, brothers, the Eastern Christians are suffering under the yoke of subjugation under pagan, as they thought, uh, that is non-Christian uh, Muslim rule. Uh, we have to go help them and that this was an act of extraordinary sacrifice and charity out of love of, of one's neighbor. So the dictum, you know, love thy neighbor, this is what they were trying to live out. 
Anyway, he was a knight of Malta. Hmm. Oh. So, yeah. Well, they, they're a bunch anyway, of... But that's my washing. <laughs> it, it had a happy ending. The bourgeois revolution came and they got kicked off their bloody island. So that thank you, Napoleon Bonaparte, yes. for all your problems. You, uh, you, you, you did put an end to the, the, the Knights of Malta. The Knights of Malta. Well, didn't they all go to Russia? They went to yeah, Russia. They went to other places. And you're right that, like, I mean, there are these weird sort of military orders. Like, they're the Knights, uh, the Teutonites. I mean, they have a different name, but you know, they're known as the Teutonic Knights. And we've heard of the Templars being suppressed, the trial of the Templars, but there are still quite a few of these weird kind of military mm -hmm. crusading orders that still exist in the, mm -hmm. in the Catholic church. Um, yeah. Is there yeah. another way for me to be a hospitaler? Don't be a hospitaler. Or, or to get a sword. You, you can, can get a sword. Definitely. We can Just arrange get a that. Sword. You can, you, know? you can, you can become a, you can become a, 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 you can become a, you know, a warrior. You can become a, a warrior. Well, warrior. who you should model yourself on to send is mm -hmm. this fantastic figure. Um, uh, the Princess Fatima, warrior woman. She is the um, subject of this amazing thousands of page uh, um, uh, epic uh, story called Sirat Vat al-Himma. It's a like, you know, huge, incredibly wide ranging story of this warrior princess who mm -hmm. fights during the era of like medieval Islamic world against the Byzantines. And her favorite thing seems to be just like uh, fighting for justice and the correct, you know, uh, honor justice and taking the heads of, of like, you know, the malefactors and the evil doers. And parts of this grand epic have been translated fairly recently into English and you can find it. And it's really? called the Princess Fatima Warrior Woman. Um, That's dope. There you yeah, go. It's really I like good. that. All that Joan of Arc stuff. I like that stuff too. You, you like that? You like? What that about too? Wakanda Forever? Do you like yeah, Wakanda what? Forever? No, because that's not real. Yeah. It's not real. What do you that's mean not, it's not real? It's made up by comic book artists. The, well, actually, actually, actually I saw the Wakanda. I, I saw the Wakanda cookbook so it must be real <laughs> That's how you know. cookbook? are you effing with me no there's a wakanda cookbook no shit man check it out go on the internet and look oh, at hold it. on i'm What's not gonna go on the internet and look for the... my internet is so effed from what i look up for this show the dugan episode alone has ruined my search function but i'm not looking at and i did all that Brooke, man, stuff at least the last video essay at least you don't have Pascal's search history, so don't worry. About <laughs> <that>. <laughs> earmuffs. Ooh. I'm starting to pick up on this earmuffs thing just a little. To suck some hard candy and suck some dicks. No, get the other one. I want. I want the other. The other one. The uh, Kamala Harris one. <laughs> oh God. That's the best sand trap you've done. Hello, everyone. Do not come. I don't know. Do not come. I'm going to come. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best sound drop you've done ever. That's way better than uh, that one. So if you guys, since we're all patrons, uh, please go listen to the live show. I know it sounds a little long, but that was like so 
I, I really want you guys to understand the effort that was put into every gag on that you heard on the live show that we made sure that everything had to hit a certain way. So, uh, and shout out to, to Jordan who, who, uh, helped put that, uh, put that all together. She put those sound clips aside for me to, to, to edit. So shout out to Jordan. Is that a Wakanda cookbook you have on the screen? That's a Wakanda cookbook. cookbook. Do you want the Wakanda cookbook? Jordan, please don't yell out you gag so hard. (laughs) The, um, is that what she said when you were gagging? Do not come. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. Champagne room. Adnan is a respectable, he's a respectable individual. He's also a very nice Canadian. He's Canadian. I'm an American living oh, in Canada. So there's a, you know, Are you really? Yes, a seamy underside to my, like, you know, pleasant Canadian, you know, um, Can- charm you're american shut the front door i'm from the bay area i'm from you know miles's uh, hood you said the magic word are you from the east bay edna well i'm from the south bay but i went to berkeley and lived in berkeley oakland for about a decade i saw you went to berkeley and i was like oh he went to berkeley and um are, are you from fremont or are you from like san jose no, from well, like uh, Sunnyvale, Mountain View, which is basically. Oh, you're from the South Bay. You're yeah. you're properly from the South Bay. Yeah, Santa Clara County. My dad oh. worked in the you know Silicon Valley high tech industry, and I grew up in one of those. In fact, actually, I went to the very high school that the two founders of Apple Computer, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, were they in your class? I am definitely older than most of you folks, but he's like uh, Pascal's age. I don't know how yeah. I don't know how old everybody is. They could Adnan could be very Adnan young. Adnan could be seventy. He's not seventy. Okay, he's not seventy. He's not seventy. They but I did, be making Steve, a... I did have Steve Jobs's old um, senior year English uh, textbook. You know how you have to write your oh, name. Yeah, yeah. Oh, on the inside and so there was like six or seven or eight like back and i was looking and i saw steve jobs he it was it was a new book when he had it it was the first year and um and i don't know why i didn't like take it and put it on ebay except that ebay didn't exist there was no ebay <laughs> it was no <laughs> ebay <laughs> would have been a great victory for you That's i mean cool. it's my, funny how my... people didn't think to take stuff like that back then we're just a yeah. day nation of tea leaves now everybody's just fevering so they can put things on ebay my daughter is waiting for the day that i'm legitimately famous so she could just sell stuff that i touched He's, she jokes about that all the time it's gonna that's gonna be another crusader style industry where it's like jason's beard hair <laughs> <laughs> right, holy, holy relics holy relics i was i was uh when I was I was at uh, I was at Topkapi Palace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Istanbul and they've got all the relics there. Yeah, and, yeah. And they have all like uh, they have like Moses's uh, uh, Moses's stick. Right. And they had this news. Uh, they had this um, Israeli family and there was the like the teenagers like, where? Why is this not in Israel? Yeah, right. Like yeah, come get it, buddy. And it's probably <laughs> not real. Okay. Dave time, L says. Dave L says it's a Madonna pap smear. <laughs> Oh God, that that would be good. Madonna on your left has a set of Jason Miles signature guitar strings. You do with my name on them, signature guitar strings. Gonna be rich. 
I don't have anything. I have a, I have a, um, I you have, have hangers behind I have, you. I have, I have nothing of, I own nothing of worth. You have thick books. I have thick books. DCs. But yep. I get most of my books from the library these days. Like mm-hmm. instead of buying books, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, you know what? I could just go to the library and get the book, read it yeah. and then put it back. And then yeah. if I want to get it again, I'll just go back to the library and get it. It's recycling. But- But you won't look smart like Adnan and yourself right now. You need to have books behind you. People don't know how to use libraries anymore. Like students are like, I don't know how to get the book. I was like, okay. You know how to use them is where people go BM. Oh, yeah, that's true. But it's like I go to students. I was like, I I can't find the book. I was like, did you go to the library? There's this magical place Mm. on the campus where there are all the books that I've put in a course reserve for you, which I put on blackboards. And so you're asking me this question right now. It's like, can I use the Khan Academy as a source? I'm like, no, go read the, the book. Khan Academy. <laughs> I have no problem with the Khan Academy or whatever, but like, don't be, don't be getting, do you get this Adnan? Do you get like the, you, do you get like everything is like a, a, a they just Googled the first 10 it's things. Just Googling. I mean, I thought people would be, you know, savvy about research because they're no. always kind of using databases maybe or they're doing search terms. But I think Google has made all of us dumb, basically, uh, because you don't know how to find things that aren't in this one format. It's a little bit like the reason why and you don't have to know anything or remember anything. And it's exactly the reason why in the ancient story uh uh, the pharaoh was said to have been told that there was this amazing guy who had invented writing and he had him executed because he said, you know, with writing, nobody will be able to remember anything anymore. Right. Well, so this, this is like a pharmacon. And so that was what, true. This is what this is what I try to get across to my students. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, I was saying, yeah, there you go. We often privilege you know, when we talk about early Islamic history, and again, Adnan knows a lot more about this, there's been a lot of debate over the last 50 years about like, how much do we really know about early Islam? And one of the critiques is like, oh, well, all the sources are oral oral sources, and those are inherently less reliable than written sources. And it's like, yeah, but like, it's not like they were just like doing Chinese whispers. They had a whole science of Isnad where they would like do like the, pro- like they, they like had, a technique and a methodology of transmitting oral information, which was like, like quite effective. And if you don't use that, yeah, you go to a writing civilization and then you ask people to remember things, they can't do it. Can't do it, yeah. But you go to a, a you go to you go to a, a pre-literate society, then um, uh, those people have like phenomenal memories, right? Like they can memorize, you know poetry and uh, and what embellishments there are is often deliberate embellishments as people try and like iterate on on uh, on stories like we have such a static culture that is being crushed by capitalism because mm. you know one of the dynamisms of stories historically was that people would get stories and they would iterate on them like but now fucking disney owns everything so you can't do a fucking like Star Wars, people should make their own fucking Star Wars movies and sell them. Why not, man? That would be cool. Well, that's that's, that's why, you know, that's the, 
story that I was mentioning, the Princess Fatima, Siratat al-Himma, you know, that was an oral art, actually, and it used mm. to be that it would be recited. You know, nobody had a book that was like several thousand pages and they kept and carried it around. You know, what you had were oral storytellers, the Rawi, you know, and they would kind of innovate and make up. You know, maybe they see that the audience is not really that keen on this particular episode and then they'll shift and they'll bring in something new or they'll elongate you know this story because it seems to really be suspenseful and working for them and so it was as you say a kind of living art where the text didn't just get stabilized in one written form but there were variants it was creative it was subject to communities interest and you have this whole relationship between the storyteller and the audience and you know you could see some examples of this uh, even in damascus uh, in the 90s, when I was studying Arabic there, there was behind the Umayyad Mosque in the center of the old city, there was a cafe behind it. And on like Tuesday night or Wednesday night, there would be uh, a Rawi who would be um, kind of retelling uh, these kinds of classic uh, stories as a living art. But that's kind of disappeared completely, you know. It's like, it's like, um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the biggest controversies of early Islam was when uh Khalif Osman uh codified the Quran. Yeah. Because, because yeah. the reciters were reciting the Quran. I mean, like I don't know again, this is not my field. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, in terms of our notions of the Quran changing yeah. recitation, I mean uh Well that's what it literally means. The recitation. I mean it's it's the recitation. Yeah, yeah it's the recitation. Yeah, kind of orally recited, memorized text but as you point out that it was kind of codified and that created its own controversies because people had some other variant or they at least wanted to have a relationship to the text that was about their memorized mm -hmm. capacity around it rather than there being a copy that was authoritative you know? and the authoritative copy was not necessarily the actual words of muhammad because it was produced after his death so, I mean, what's your take on the idea, uh, like, you know, a lot of di discussion and debate amongst historians, again, I don't know what the most up-to-date opinions are on this about the evolution of the Quran. I know, like, uh, Crone and what's his name, they mm -hmm. gave up on their whole, like, Hagarism stuff. But, I mean, right. do you do you, uh, do, you, uh, do you think the Quran developed over a, a, an extended historical era, or do you think it can be, by and large, be seen as a unitary product of Muhammad's lifetime? You know, again, it's also not exactly my field, but it is, I mean, some of the newer, more recent, you know, there was a kind of uh, tradition of scholarship that just followed the Muslim kind of like, you know, narrative, but slightly organized, you know, by Western scholarly standards. And then there was, as you point out, some rev radical revisionists that said, no, none of this is from that time. It's all from some late time and who knows what it was. And you know, all of that. And I think the more recent kind of turn in scholarship is a kind of sense of sober historicism, but taking into account the fact that this was an oral culture that could produce relative stability and the fact that there were a lot of people who had memorized it so that something like what was the text is the text in the canonical, but 
you know, there will be some variance. And that's what scholars try and figure out where they can find, you know, there might have been different, you know, there is always because of sectarianism, because of the Sunni Shi'i split, there is always sort of, uh, you know, claims, you know, among the more kind of radical sectarian Shi'is that say hey, there are verses that have just been suppressed and wiped out that actually refer to doctrinal you know, issues that they're concerned with that are the how convenient for the Shia. Yeah. Well, how exactly. convenient. This is how this is exactly right. Is that and this is exactly how you know all of these religious systems work with scripture is that they claim that they're either you have to read it allegorically, which is the whole Christian move on the Hebrew Bible, so it becomes the Old Testament, right? Um, basically the the difference is is it's the same text, but we read it completely differently. Mm. And there's all these kinds of elements that clearly show Jesus is coming, he's going to be the savior, etc. It's just that, you know, the Jews don't read it that way. They're blinded to the allegorical significance and spiritual significance of these things. The other way to deal with it is to say they tampered with the text and they've written out, you know, where there was, you know, information that would show you know, our particular religious tradition flowing out of it. And so you find this, the same thing happening in, in, in the Muslim, in the Muslim tradition between Shis and Sunnis. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and as the doctrinal difference has grown over the historical, you know, over the, you know, over the ages, like political divisions have like metastasized into theological ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, um, you know, Probably it seems like it started as a political dispute and it became a theological one. I mean, you know, this is what uh, great historian, um, Quaker, uh, University of Chicago, Professor Marshall Hodgson basically said in a famous. Fantastic. Like, I do recommend the three volumes Hodgson yeah. has. Really good. Like, of course, there's been lots of changes in scholarship and so on, but you will not get a more significant and substantial kind of survey of Middle East and early Islamic history than Marshall Hodgson's venture of Islam. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a really it's I did try to assign it to my undergrads and I was like it's a bit too no. It's, it's too dense. Too. Yeah. It's become like a master's level text. When you think of it, it was like a second year, first or second year introductory civ course that he wrote it for. But yeah, it's pretty beefy. 60s, but like we don't read like that anymore. So that's true. Well, yeah. you know, my feelings on thing, I don't trust the rifta on anything, you know, <laughs> including my wife, right. who's from Mashhad. So she's hardcore. Oh, wow. Okay. She's, yeah. she's from hardcore rifta territory. Right. She wouldn't let me call our son Yazid. I wanted to call oh, him. Oh, gee, that was a very. Uh, I was like, we, we're going to call him. We're going to call him Amar. Yazid, uh, Maui Abajalan. How about that? Oh Let's my go. gosh! Oh my gosh! We're gonna God. we're gonna go for the big boys. You know, we're gonna we're gonna get the we're gonna get the big guys out. There's a bit of Sunni okay, Shia. That's, yeah, that's that's some little Sunni Shia uh, humor there. Uh, are you are you people Sunnis or Shia? Like from uh, Sunni, yeah, yeah. Because there's a there is a there is a significant Shia population in South Asia. Um, oh yes, in South Asia there there are yeah there are in fact um, yeah also not from a, a place that's very far away from where my father's family come from in Uttar Pradesh province, mm -hmm. 
you know, Lucknow. Is Beautiful awesome. place, by the way. Is so. it? Have you mm-hmm. been? No, I haven't. But I oh. did. I did a project on it, and it's just all the images are just incredible. Yeah, I have myself also never been, and I would like to before you know all traces of uh, you know South Asian Islam and Muslims are wiped <laughs> out. Wiped out, yeah. BJP. So uh, the clock is ticking to be able to see some of these places. There was some talk. I I, I remember recently some talk about how we you know they wanted to get rid of the taj mahal it's like wow that's bonkers that's that's not that's that's some crazy level stuff i mean my uh my professor of ottoman history when i was studying my master's degree was south asian uh suraya faruqi she's uh, oh yes yes she's a lovely woman yes she's a really nice lady she's half half german half Mm -hmm. uh indian her father was a uh, 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 I think from South India somewhere. Uh, yeah. She's um, like really, she's been learning Turkish. She's like the mistress of Ottoman yeah. studies. Uh, she speaks Turkish like a lady from the 1960s in Istanbul. Right. Uh, she's very, uh, very kind and she was very supportive. Um, and I remember people asking us like, oh, were you born in East or West Germany? She was like, oh, no, I was born in Nazi Germany. Yeah. She was, that, she was that old. She's still she's still publishing books. The woman is yeah. a she, the woman is a machine when it comes. Unbelievable. To, she must be like ninety or something, right? Mm-hmm. She's in her nineties. She, she was in her late seventies when I studied with her in mm-hmm. in Istanbul. In Istanbul, yeah. And she is still going. So I think she's probably late eighties. Okay. But yeah. In in very good health. Uh, she was always very spry and active, and mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. Uh, and she knows everybody. She taught in Can- she taught in Kansas. Yeah. Uh, she, I remember she told me my, my PhD advisor, one of my PhD, uh, two PhD advisors, my PhD advisor, one of them, she was like, Ah, Eugene, he was a very naughty boy, like at Harvard. He was. She's taught at Harvard, Princeton. Mm. Uh, she was at Maximilian Ludwig University for a while. I mean, she's been. She's. Yeah. They don't make them like they make it. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, no, she is one of a kind. I mean, from an era, they don't make her make them. uh, And and actually to think that, you know, um, that the, you know, sexism of the era, you know, like what she must have dealt with on the way up. But she is just the purest scholar, you know, totally erudite, doesn't care about, you know, fame, fortune. It's just like she's just you know, focused on, you know, studying this past history and with a rigor and a humanity that is just unmatched. You don't find people like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's all activist scholars now. Yes, yes. Which which is like, you know, I'm increasingly hostile to the activist scholar model because I think it produces bad history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like... You know, people talk about presentism as being a problem in history. I don't have a problem with presentism per se that you there's a, that like a moderate form of presentism makes sense in okay. terms that you will ask different questions depending on the historical era you're in. Mm-hmm. The, the, the problem is when people seek to impose uh, impose certain uh, interpretations of the past. Yeah. With, I mean, it's like, I think like a good example of this, I don't know, maybe you disagree. Joseph Massad's whole thesis on the old gay stuff in the Middle East. Right. And it's like, there is something to the argument that there's a kind of Victorian bourgeois 
mm-hmm. morality that appears in the late 19th century. I mean, you see it yeah. in someone like Ahmed Javdet, who writes a history of the Ottomans, and he says, like, you know, before the uh, before the Russian-German uh, before the Russian-Ottoman War, all the statesmen of the Tanzimat were running around looking for boys. And then after the war, they were all with their wives. I think there's something to it, but I think there is a little bit of a tendency to romanticize, you know, like, oh, it was all super cool in the Middle East to be gay uh, until the Europeans messed it up. And I think think that's, I think, I think it changes. It changes. Yeah. It changes, but, and there's a different sexual order created in the region. I mean, it's, it's no accident, for example, the, the derogatory word for homosexuality. I mean, I don't know in Arabic. Uh, in, oh. in, in Turkish, what is it's good that in, in mm. uh, Farsi is kunda. It's all about being the passive and not being right. the active. So right. there is there is a notion of the, you know, homosexuality is not the act of sex with a man. It's about which which end of the it's right better, it's 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 better to give than to receive as they say yes yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> elegant uh you know way to put it uh, but, yes but there certainly is still a persecution of people who you know are outside of sexual norms of the society it's just a different yeah. set of sexual rules. yeah 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 that's right yeah well, so what you're saying, you're, you're saying that he's sort of over egged this idea that there was some kind of, um, you know, pre identitarian, you know, mode of sexuality that I mean, has been ruined essentially by like the intervention of, you know, Western kind of uh, Western practices. And yeah, he's got that famous article about the gay international that was in like, what was it, social text or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I think I think it's not um, historically. I mean, basically, for people doing that kind of work, the big boundary and difference is modernity and mm-hmm. critique of modernity, which means that very often their pre-modern history is not textured and paying attention to the various different kind of social forces and power, how it's operating, because that's against which. You know, modernity changed. Modernity is back, yeah. and modernity yeah. is just a code word for the bourgeois revolution. Right. But yeah. they don't want to say that because we don't That's do Marxism no more. But um, I mean, I think I think this also explains. I mean, I think my take, and again, Adnan, maybe you disagree with me uh, on this. I think you know one of the byproducts, for example, of the you know foundational role of something like Orientalism by Said and things mm. like that. And why I really dislike Said, not in every aspect. I think he was a good writer. I yeah, think yeah. he wrote a good critiques of. He wrote very well on Palestinian politics. Oh, but I, I think, think question of Palestine is still like the best, you know, book. I, and I think Orientalism is actually a bad book. But right. I, I think it's. I think it's. Wow. A deep, I think it's a deeply problematic book. I think it's. It's a. Uh, uh, it creates. I used to be. Yeah, I used to be more. Uh, again, you know, kind of critical of of, of Orientalism as a work. Um, now I feel like it's just so much a part of, you know, it, like you can't even talk about the book now because it's decolonize your mind, Adnan. Well, that, but but, but I, I think I think Orientalism 
ultimately it provides and we see this like it, it, if you go to the middle east all these islamists are talking about orientalism this is the thing that they you know if you propagate like a secular universal ideology uh, you're not propagating a secular universal ideology you're propagating uh eurocentrism right you're propagating so so marx is a eurocentric but it's, but it's yeah. not just even it's like just basic liberal values right yeah. And and uh, these are all, and and you know like the 19th century writers were far more sophisticated on this, you know, uh, in terms of their attempts to harmonize their traditional values with liberal uh, ideas. But I think we have this like, I think decolonization as an academic project, mm. even though this is not the intention, is a right wing project. I think the uh, the end point is the Iranian Revolution, which is anti imperialist but mm -hmm. is a right-wing iteration mm -hmm. of anti-imperialism i'm not saying people are like having this secret plan to make no. but i think the implications become right-wing when you when you do this i don't know your thought yeah what, what no, you... i think i see what you mean and i think you know when you see that with a lot of these ideological turns in theory with postmodernism, and you know this plays into this kind of post-colonial sort of critique that that you mentioned when it becomes more about culture than the material conditions you definitely have the you know, opportunity for uh you know somebody like donald rumsfeld to sound like a deridian you know the known knowns <laughs> and unknown unknowns and when i heard him say that i was like okay this is the apotheosis of postmodernism because this is the attack on you know truth on like a verifiable you know kind of materialist analysis you know, you get some right winger who's a who loves this sort of, you know, and then we see that obviously, you know, bearing fruit later on with with, you know, Trump and, and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, um, but I get one question I did have for you, because when you were talking about presentism, I assume you were talking on some <coughs> level about James H. Sweet's you oh, know, yeah. column in perspectives, which is the kind of news magazine-y sort of element of the American Historical Association where, you know, the guild kind of talks about what, of historians yeah. talk about like what's happening in the discipline. And he pontificated about like some challenge that he sees to, you know, the direction of history. He said, "Is the title was, is history history? Identity politics and teleologies of the present. And he basically wrote, oh, there's too much presentism going on in the you know kind of field of history he got a huge backlash utter you know uh, you know uh, released a kind of mea culpa apology well, grovel. Yeah, grovel. Grovel. that's right well which which created its own backlash among kind of conservative both historians but outside now it became something that people outside of the you know historians world were talking about because it was the pc police clearly have forced this guy you know to retract to do self yeah self-criticism yeah exactly so we talked about this actually in a recent recording it hasn't come out yet with gerald horn who i think is one of the targets of this sort of <laughs> presentism critique and so I was just interested, you know, what your take on that was. That's actually, you know, actually, I don't know if you remember, Jason, I think I sent you this. I said uh, when it happened, uh, we were discussing it with Pascal. It was a while back. I mean, like, off air conversation, right? Yeah, it was an off air conversation. Yeah. We talked about whether we'd talk about it on one of the news shows because I found it such an interesting. Now, 
there was something in his initial article which was a little bit a little bit whiny. You're talking uh, about Gerald Horn, right? No, no, no. About oh, about this sweet, sweet. But I don't think I don't. I like. Um, I found the response to it just like totally ridiculous. I was like, you know, like it's not like an effect. It's not. There was a, a couple of a couple of years ago, Adnan. I don't you remember. I don't know if you remember. There was a guy who wrote an in defense of colonialism article, which was a really really not it was a gross it was a gross article this was a historiographical article the guy had an opinion he had a point to a certain degree and i would say this and people know my opinions on general horn i think gerald horn is a great example of how this identity politics drives you to the political right right gerald horn is a fucking right winger and why is that because he because like uh, well, Pascal thinks that. Well, Joe. Uh, say goodbye to the black viewers of the show. <laughs> no, my brother. You got to buy your own. <laughs> the problem I have with, like, for example, his book on the uh, 1776, the counter right. It's a bad book. It's bad, like badly resourced. Like you pick up a couple of, you can't base an entire historical thesis on like a couple of letters and make the, you know, and make the argument that well the british were going to abolish slavery there's so many uh, 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 there's so many if britain had maintained control of the uh, american colonies for example would there have been a bigger interest group in maintaining slavery in the british empire you know there's you know like i uh, and ultimately the argument and i see a lot of so-called marxists taking this on is mm -hmm. a repudiation of the bourgeois revolution which is Ultimately, for all its flaws of the American Revolution, it was a progressive revolution in that it opened up a potentiality for human emancipation that, again, there was a much more important revolution called the Civil War, in which mm -hmm. slavery was liquidated. But I think this in I think there's a difference between highlighting the contradictions of revolutions like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and then totally rejecting it and doing so what do you do you end up with a fucking picture of cornwallis in your office praising the redcoats as a liberatory force and well they were supposed to be freeing black people from slavery to fight for the for the, for the uh, british uh, army right? yeah <clears throat> i mean yeah, look I mean, for, yeah, for people i want to i want to put a defensive horn not necessarily on the 1776 book and and kind of the double down on that thereafter mm -hmm. He wrote some great scholarship on Du Bois. Yeah. And du Bois in Japan. Um, he also wrote some pretty interesting books on, on uh, LA 60s. So for a guy that shits out like a thousand books a year, um, maybe his most popular. He wrote a great book on uh, on Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson book. Yeah. Um, he's got a book out now about uh, boxing that I haven't read yet. I want to check out. Uh, I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater with him because I don't agree uh, with with his theory well, of that. I'm not trying to cancel him. Don't worry. I, I, I don't know. I know you're not. I'm not saying this to Gene Bajal. I'm saying this to everyone listening mm -hmm. that maybe like f that guy because he said something I don't agree with. Um, there's a lot of things to agree with with that man. He'll forget more about history than I'll ever learn. Um, I think a lot of us just don't necessarily agree with the 1776 book and some of the other books that kind of orbit that, but uh, his, yeah. his biography I mean, is pretty good. Yeah. Well, what I would say about that is, um, you know, 
what I don't like is I think it's kind of been ignored, you know, in sort of the American history sort of world, professional historians. I mean, they should take it apart if they have the evidence. And I think, you know, you're right, Gene, that it is based kind of on this one like sort of court case mm -hmm. and it's sort of, uh, you know, but it is a very interesting thesis in the sense that um, you do have to put into some sort of context what the conditions of settler colonialism are. Like a lot of these Republican, you know, revolutions. I mean, look, Ian Smith in Rhodesia is a Republican yep. revolution. You know, like oh, there is a way in which, you know, a kind of settler class creates a sort of quasi-democratic Republican order for the defense of, you know, their settler position. That happens a lot in Latin America. Some of the Bolivarian revolutions are like that. You know, not the whole way of thinking about it, but I think we do have to think of the intersection between, as you say, a progressive bourgeois revolution and a settler colonial context that both have a real impact on the subsequent history of the U.S. and formation of its political culture. So, I, I mean, I can I completely agree. I mean, like in terms of, I mean, that's what I mean, and and this is why I always push back on Catron when Catron and the Platts are always like, oh, American Revolution. American. I was like, yeah, okay, you know, like there's a lot of important revolutionary steps, and obviously it's, it has to be historicized, you know the you know the 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 unilateral declaration of independence of rhodesia happens at a very different historical moment from yeah. from from the american uh, revolution and but in certain the bolivarian ones are kind of closer you know the, the Bolivar, and yeah. the and the bolivarian revolutions as well i think uh again there is a whole different there's a whole set, i think i agree that we have to look at the I mean, all bourgeois revolutions fall short of their universalist goals. I mean, yeah. that's that's what Marxism is. Marxism is not a repudiation of liberalism. It's like liberalism has these great ideas, but it can't bring them to you, right? It's going to yes. tell you about free speech. It can't right. give you free speech. It's going to yeah. take. It can't give you equality. The bourgeois revolution. Marxism is a continuation of the bourgeois revolution. The issue I have with Horn and the quote-unquote anti-imperialist uh, so-called Marxist-Leninism which is nothing to do if you ask me with you know Marx, marxism is that they repudiate universalism mm. in mm -hmm. fa in favor of an inverted american exceptionalism and i said this to right. him in the podcast yeah yeah that's right and, I, I, and that was it's, a, a sage comment and a good observation yeah yeah it's because i mean he's been I working mean, on that theory for a while yeah i mean this is i mean this is something i've been really yeah i've been really mulling this over because this is because I want to like, there's a lot of people yelling, for example, getting mad at like the gray zone people who, mm -hmm. and you, I mean, you know, probably ju just as well, even better than I do. And I'm like about the way that the gray zones, maybe they don't always lie, but they're very selective with their narrative. And it, you know, and you know, it's, it ends up functionally whitewashing what Assad has done in mm -hmm. Syria, which barbarized the country. But I don't want to yell at them and say like "fuck you guys," right? I want to understand what is the ideological. I'm not. I don't want to say you guys are grifters and liars. Yeah. I want to understand what is the ideological worldview that is driving you to take this narrative. And I think it's this repudiation of liberalism, which, yes. which is, it, it, which is the. Uh, it's like it's like people smashing down pictures of uh, so-called Marxists pulling down Abraham Lincoln 
statues. It's like, do you realize this is like one of the only political yeah. leaders Marx ever thought actually had a revolutionary potential? And the mm -hmm. American Revolution, the American Revolution, on one hand, is like a settler colonial racist society, uh, uh, but at the same time, it's like the purest bourgeois society. Mm -hmm. It means that America has been able to expand the boundaries of what it is to be an American in a way that European countries haven't, right? You go to Germany, you know, yeah. like you, you come to America, the Civil War gave you a revolutionary concept of citizenship, which is you are born on this land, you are yeah. a citizen of this land. I don't know about in Canada, you're born in Canada, you aren't automatically Canadian. Certainly not true in Britain, certainly not true in Europe. The, there is always some kind of blood race component to it. Whereas the American bourgeois revolution has very reactionary sides to it, but it also has this very, in some ways, the, like if you read Lenin or you read Trotsky before, uh, or you read Rosa Luxemburg or you read Kowski, if you read them before the Bolshevik revolution, they think the revolution is going to happen in America. Well, do you think right. some of this, what you're, what you're talking about, Gene, do you think some of this has to do with the fact that uh, I think hero worship is on a whole nother level at this stage of the last 25 years or so in the States in Western society, we're always looking for a hero. So if Abraham Lincoln was a hero, you found out he was part of the eradication of native Americans. Now he's no longer a hero. Um, it's almost like um, they build you up to break you down. But of course, you know, no one really had to well, build. So, so, isn't it the same reason they get upset when you like say anything critical of Stalin, right? Yeah. It's like it's like, oh, how dare you! Like, yeah. uh, my, my God was not perfect. I mean, it's like it, well, it's 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 because they have to have this pure hero. But, but, but isn't that isn't that kind of a doesn't that speak to this kind of impotence of any sort of left or any idea of being counter to the dominant? thought in 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 the west like there seems to be people that want to see socialism or they don't like the democratic party or even the two-party system but it kind of stops there with i don't like it nobody really wants to build a better system they just want better people to run it for them and they go back to history and well this guy ran it the right way. I dig him. We need him again. We need more Stalin. People want him. Yeah, sometimes I just feel like the hero I, worship. Is I mean, I, I, like I told, no one wants to do it themselves, or or even try and even try to see what a better world will, will look like. Well, you know what I always tell my students. I said when they ask me about my feelings on Stalin, I said, look. I view Stalin in the same way as I uh, view George Washington. He had some progressive aspects to him, but he did like to rely on a lot of forced labor. <laughs> okay. I think even Gerald Horn could agree with you there. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, 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 I mean, I don't want to hate on Gerald Horn. Like, no, as, I know. I, I'm not, I'm like, I don't know Gerald Horn personally. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. Uh, I, I'm sure and he's like very generous with his time. He's an educator, uh, but I, I do see, like, rather than to rather than trying to like get past our political impasse, it's like whoever they told you was the good guy at school is now the bad guy, and whoever yeah, right. they told you was the bad guy at school is now the good guy, and we just 
invert everything. Yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't sublate it. We don't alpha and bug it, right? We don't go beyond it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right about the, the, the there's some sort of reaction to liberalism, you know, that is taking place. Mm -hmm. um, some elements of it, of course, are fueled by a genuine sense of the hypocrisies and contradictions of it, that it can be a dead end, you know, uh, and it has its its terrible limitations. But this, I think kind of what uh, Jason was sort of mentioning, in addition to the <coughs> hero worship, there's also how much politics has become um, an individualized sort of moral kind mm -hmm. of question. And this is a problem, basically neoliberalization of politics as a whole, even if it's left politics, even if it's anti-imperialist politics, Ooh, it's this. Adnan needs to watch the, the, the new video essay coming soon. Oh, this okay. is... <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it because, I mean, it seems to me, I was, you know, thinking about this. It's like consumer politics, you know, okay, I'm going to boycott this or I won't buy that because it's a moral individual experience that we're framing this around. And where is the social? Where is mm. the material? That level the, of analysis. The, the social's in the spectacle, Adnan. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's get together to shut down the freeway, throw some paint on some art. But this is it. We're going to organize for the spectacle. And there's your social. Well, we need to raise awareness. Hello. Yeah, raise awareness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That's, I mean, that's the problem. And I've said this before on the show, you know, like I was really struck by the pictures in Sri Lanka, you know, when they bust into the president's palace, they're on his Peloton, they're in his pool. Hmm. They've, they've, they've seized the state. They're in the palace. They're there. But then what? There's no right. program. <laughs> they were, they're literally on his fucking Peloton. I'm telling you. Peloton, you work will, out. Mind, dude. Peloton but, will blow your mind. Then you my mom had a Peloton. Changed my life. This is why the Arab Spring went all tits up. It's like... You, 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 they had a pro, there was no program, right? Yeah. In fact, there was a program like in Egypt, everyone's mm -hmm. like, oh, look at all these liberals. They want to have a, like a democracy. Who's the only force that's organized? It's the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody who was on the ground will tell you, yeah, we were in the square, but the Muslim Brotherhood, they would take the fight to the street, right? And then they took power, right? And then the liberals balked. Yeah. Half of them fucking just sided with the bloody military, right? Right. And that's uh, and like not all of them. I'm not going to do everybody who pro who protested the regime, but a good fucking proportion of them were like, oh shit, what have we unleashed here? And it comes back to what we talked about on the uh, uh in the in the early show. It's like these Arab dictatorships. They're like, hey motherfuckers, yeah. you better fucking back us because if you don't, we're gonna let. I mean, isn't this what Assad did in Syria? Crush the liberals in the left first, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, and then just who you left to fight the absolute fucking lunatics yeah. in uh, like in ISIS. Why is it that Grayzone never talks about Rojava, right? Well, because like then it doesn't fit in the fucking narrative that like whatever your feelings about your uh, the cooperation between the PYD and the United States is like, well, this doesn't really fit your narrative that everybody opposing the uh, Assad regime is a, a Islamist terrorist who wants. Why do they <laughs> always talk about Idlib? Why don't they talk about you know, uh, uh, commercially, you know, so, yeah, so it's like, yeah. a. I mean, we see it in the Iran stuff but by the same, by the same token, see what they're responding to perhaps is partly also this sort of sense that, 
oh, Assad is the greatest evil. And so mm -hmm. you end up getting this kind of counter response, which mm -hmm. is, you know, washing, you know, uh, you know, all of the problems with it when, you know, the real problem is, is that we don't have a people's, you know, revolution. We don't have a, you know, social grouping that managed to survive the play of this kind of extreme political polarization to actually build the alternative that's required, which is neither dictatorship nor extremist, you know, and, and that's why you said the, the liberals and the socialists were the ones who got crushed kind of earliest, uh, you know, in this. And, um, you know, I but think it's partly, like this sense, it's partly this sense also that, and I, I am somewhat sympathetic to this notion is that, of course, as scholars or as people who are aware of what's going on in the world, we want to see, well, what is the situation as a whole and what do we think of it? Where do we stand vis-a-vis -vis it? But, you know, one of our big responsibilities is, of course, to confront the harm that our own country and government yes. do. And so we're, we're obliged <coughs> to not just sort of have some kind of abstracted position about like where should we be but it's like okay we do have things that we could do to halt the depredatory power of you know u.s government policies around the world and so on that of course shouldn't turn into this uh polemical you know reflex anti-imperialism that doesn't actually substantially distinguish between you know, well, it's basically, you know, you have to have a sense of the complexity of the world, of the historical play of these forces. It's always a much more complicated story. Um, but I do, I am sympathetic to the idea that the first responsibility that we have is in our own political community, where supposedly as democratic citizens, we have, you know, an opportunity to shape, you know, policy, and we need to fight for democracy in our country, because, clearly despite the will of the people you know we never get the policies that actually reflect it either domestically or in foreign foreign policy so i i get that kind of focus that people have but when that only becomes as you were saying it kind of reflects american exceptionalism in reverse of course we're missing well the problem uh, like I'll, I'll tell you why i think it's a pernicious problem on the left i first of all i totally agree right the you know the first task is to criticize your own country, uh, and you know talk about uh, you know policies of your own country. I mean, like I've been asked to sign you know uh, things uh, about Iran, and some of them I don't feel comfortable signing because they're like, oh, we should uh, not do the uh, nuclear deal. I think that, let's not connect that stuff with the protest in Iran. That's not going to be a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I am sympathetic to that. I think I think. We see it most starkly in Ukraine, where we see, you know, there's such a hegemonic uh, gung-ho uh, support for Ukraine amongst liberalism that people react to it and become Putin apologists. Yeah. Why I think becoming the Putin apologist or the Islamic Republic apologist or the Assad ap apologist becomes a problem is because I think, and maybe you disagree with me, I think that just becomes another form of spectacle politics because mm. you feel so disempowered at home. Yeah. You end up projecting your hopes on an external power. External, that's right. And yeah. so, so, so like. So you can make political change in your own environment. You don't, right. you, you, you become entirely negative. Like mm. there's no hope of change. Americans are fucking shit. 
blah, blah, blah. And so it it becomes just as like, for example, anti-fascism becomes a, an excuse to liquidate yourself into the Democratic Party. Anti-imperialism, you know, becomes an excuse to just abstain from any meaningful politics and do the type of politics that Jason's talking about, which is just you do like something symbolic, you yell at somebody, you don't do anything to challenge the military industrial complex or the mm. I- I war machine because you're focusing all your time running interference, trying to tell people, no, they're telling you Putin's the bad guy, but he's actually the good guy and he's fighting the fascists and it's all the wrong way around. So it's right. a way of, because I see some of these Marxist Leninists on line and I'm like, you just spend all day dogging on how shitty Americans are. It's like, <laughs> like, do you not re- like at the end of the day, whether people like it or not, uh, Marxism, uh, if you call yourself a Marxist, you believe the revolution is only going to be sustainable if the revolution conquers at least some of the core countries of capital, right? Because right. How, how else? I mean, when the Russian revolution was isolated, Blakhanov's mm-hmm. prediction about what it would take in Blakhanov said, we shouldn't do a revolution in Russia because if we're yeah. isolated, we'll end up doing Incan industrialization and they'll blame us, the socialists. Right. Well, that's why it was always supposed to happen in Germany or, you know, in one of these, you know, kinds of uh, industrialized uh, countries where it would then, you know, have a real, you know, cataclysmic effect on capitalism as a global system. Right. You know, it it can't if it can be quarantined in the way it was. Yeah. If you had a real socialist movement in the United States, right. Whatever we think about the whether Americans deserve it or not. Because of the, the the way that America is at the apex of the global, if you had a real movement here, mm-hmm. that would have absolutely fucking global spanning implications. Think yeah. about the impact that civil rights had on peoples all over the world, from Northern Ireland to absolutely. South Asia. And so if, if, if we can't build a radical movement in America, I mean, like, Yes, we got to support our comrades in another country, but they ain't, there's no fucking Iranian path to socialism by itself. There's no Iranian, there's no fucking end to this stuff. So I, I'm. Well, this is why the question, I mean, obviously for us, we have to be concerned and think about, you know, where do we fit in the global capitalist system? What index, you know, of, you know, power and change is possible, you know, for us in the United States? What does it mean to have solidarity in a meaningful way with those who are legitimately struggling in other theaters? And, you know, another question or a component of this is what of China? You know, like this is also the key other like place where a genuine democratic and socialistic, you know, system <clears throat> there would have huge consequences, you know, on global development throughout the world. You know, this is this is what's what's emerging. But if you're just trying to apologize for, you know, multipolarity without thinking of how this is actually shaping, you know, uh, you know, shaping uh, economic and social and political relations, you know, in a meaningful in a meaningful manner. Um, it's just this knee-jerk sort of, you know, anti-American, in which I don't have any problem. Look, I don't have a single problem being anti-American. <laughs> There's so many problems with, it, with the U.S. and its its global role. But, um, 
you know, I don't see, you know, in the debates about China, obviously we should be dead set against a cold war or a hot war with mm -hmm. China. Absolutely. We've got to stop that. Uh, but, you know, the real question is, is, you know, whether China, you know, where is China headed? Um, I think that's, I think that's, a, I mean, I think, I think China definitely as the other major node of global capitalism, the Chinese proletariat could be the ones that could do it. indeed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think maybe, you know, 50 years ago, it would have had to be America. But mm -hmm. nowadays, I think we have the China option. Because at the yeah. end of the day, like neoliberalism wouldn't be possible without cheap Chinese products to keep everybody happy. It is integral to the global capitalist uh, system. And, you know, like this is like <clears throat> I, I have a I have discussions with some of my ultra left friends. And, you know, one of the things I always come up with is like, like, let's take the Uyghur stuff. Right. Right. Like, what's going on with the Uyghurs? I would say this, like. It could be worst case scenario for what's going on with the Uyghurs. Like they could everything that we're being told about what's going on could all be happening. That wouldn't change my position that I don't want to fuck in America to go to yeah. war with China uh, right. because I think the, save the Uyghurs. Yeah, save right. the Uyghurs. I think that'd be a fucking disaster, and yeah. millions of people will fucking die. And the Uyghurs are victims, and we should help them. What you know, like where we can. But like, but one of the things I was saying is like, look, okay. Like you, you believe China is like a socialist state, right? So does that mean, why does it matter whether it's true or not about the Uyghurs? Would it change your position if it was true? Or would you change your position if it wasn't true? Because I'll be honest with you, like, I'm not going to say, oh, the Uyghurs are getting massacred. Uh, let's nuke China, because I don't think that's going to be a productive, uh, you know, it sounds cold hearted, uh, but it's like, you know, what we don't, we don't have the power to do anything and if we ask yeah. our fucking imperial estate to do something it's not going to make it better right it's right. going to make it worse so like it doesn't fucking matter it's like it's like why are you fucking so defensive about it it's like well, there is know, a lot of there's a lot of evidence coming out there's some pretty nasty stuff going on yeah i don't think they're fucking murdering everybody there because they need them to work in the plantations and stuff but there's some violent cultural assimilation taking place Industrialization is a brutal fucking process. It is. And it has always been historically. Like, I mean, you know, what well, about the, sorry, the English working class? You know, yeah, like a classic. Piece. Yeah, exactly. Um, great point. Well, J JB made a good uh, statement here. Now, you know, I know it's late where, uh, where Adnan is. Um, he said, in my honest opinion, a lot of people want junk food news that's easy to digest with clear, good versus evil narrative. Yep. And I think it's even, I think it's less junk food news, and they want Jamba Juice news. They I want like Jamba news. Juice. You, you tread lightly. Like. You tread lightly on Jamba Juice, okay? <laughs> we want to think it's healthy and good for us, and we get all our fruits and vegetables in just this one gigantic cup. You can That's get a spike with, with with vitamins too. With the branding, with the branding, I like. Yeah, and and I can get a wheatgrass shot that makes me feel like, um, I am I am healthy now, and that's going to make all the Big Macs go away, and that's how I feel, JB. I think it's even a little bit more than just junk food. I think the idea that your junk food isn't junk food, and that's where to me kayfabe plays in when it comes to our our media diet and the way we view politicians, the way we view politics in general is the idea that we are 
uh, have a better grasp on it because we've consumed more TikToks. The simulacra of knowledge. There you go. There you go. And Adnan needs to go to bed. That's what we were given. Uh, Adnan. Really quick, can I just, just, uh, I really want to say this. Uh, Adnan, just can you tell us really quickly about ornam- the ornament of the world? Oh, I ornament was, of the world by yeah. Maria Rose Menocal? <clears throat> well, the documentary. Oh, the documentary. Oh, yeah. Well, I was part of this documentary that was based on Mary, uh, Maria Rose Menocal's uh, book about kind of the three cultures of medieval Spain um, mm-hmm. that uh, especially talks about, um, you know, uh, Muslim Spain, which existed, uh, you know, for almost 800 years and as a story that's very often not understood as being part of Europe's history. And so I was part of that uh, documentary because that's the kind of stuff that I work on and teach. And it was fun to be a part of. And if people are interested, you can read, you can find this. It's a sort of PBS documentary. Uh, I have a small role, so don't imagine that, uh, you know, I'm a huge part of it, but it was great to be uh, on it. If you're interested in some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about the crusading society, I do have a free, open, online course, a FOOC. Yes, a FOOC. Um, oh, put, put the link in the chat and I'll put it in the description. Okay, well, you can register for it by going to www wadnanhussein.org slash courses. And if you register there, you'll get a link for the Google Meet uh, that takes place on Saturdays, 9.30 to uh, 11 Eastern time. And um, But if you can't make that time, you can gain access to the recordings of our sessions. And basically it's the kind of stuff we were talking about and trying to think about how medieval history is still sadly you might say relevant um to us today so i like to do that kind of public stuff um and just have good discussion with people so it's free open online check it out and this podcast is cool it's two podcasts i've actually only i've listened to the medulus one i have not listened to the gorilla history one gorilla history dope. really nice lineup of hosts yeah yeah the other the hosts are Henry Hakamaki and uh, Brett uh, O'Shea, who's uh, the person behind uh, Revolutionary Left Radio and the Red Menace podcast oh. as well. Oh. So he's a co-host with with me and Henry on um, on Guerrilla History. So do check nice. it out. It's an all-star lineup. Mm-hmm. Since there, been he was so recently on. Um, oops, sorry. He's recently on Left Reckoning. That's all. He was, yeah. He was talking about MAGA communism. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. That, Watch that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to send us some guests that you recommend our way because we do like to we like we like to do what the right wingers do and get all the good people on all the shows that so everybody sees them because that's right. how the right wing does it. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Good point. Good well, point. thank you guys. I've really, really enjoyed the show about the Qatar sports washing mm-hmm. and champagne, you know, the champagne room is, is, this was is a fiery, this is this, a great champagne room that I hope, uh, yeah, I hope people fun. come back and listen to. This is a really good one. Maybe uh, we should make it a public champagne room. We haven't done a public champagne room for a while. We haven't, but you spit but, uh, some hot fire, Gene. Look, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if, if everyone's going to get mad at me because I made the live show public before everybody else so the live show goes public thursday so i'm a little nervous 
No one's gonna, gonna get mad at you. Nobody's gonna get mad. No one. They're not even gonna know. They're only mad at the duck. They're only mad at the duck, yeah. But Adnan, I'm gonna be bothering you to talk. I want to talk crusades and. Uh, uh, well, Adnan, I was very serious about you and Pascal uh, and Baji uh, doing a show about uh, the history of Islam. Um, Jean Bajlan, thank you for uh, being your knowledgeable, wonderful self. No, oh, no, um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm nowhere near Adnan on on this stuff. He's the I, he's the I, he's the master. One thing I want people to to know that when we have our off air conversations that you might hear us talk about. It's definitely all of us throwing around some sort of theory we've been working on um, for some sort of paper we're going to write, or in Gene's case, a book he's going to write. So, <clears throat> Or we're talking about what kind of butts Jason's been checking out on Tinder. That is true. <laughs> she has her own tortilla place. She makes tortillas. I know she has tortillas. I know she has tortillas. She makes colored tortillas. Blue ones. Is that, is that like a, is that a woke thing? Not tortillas for coloreds. That would be <laughs> Okay. Adnan, you look so tired. It must be super late where you are. It is midnight, and uh, we have the Crusading Society, my actual course, tomorrow, my seminar. Oh, yeah. Look, go. go. On your left, I don't know if she's earmuffs yet. So, all right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. And I'm playing Megadeth on the way out. You know why? You're behind a paywall. Yeah.